Yes, thank you, Ms. McMillan. After watching a little bit of the presidential debate, I think the, the, the song Lies by the Knickerbockers might be very appropriate. Well, at least in relationship to Donald J. Trump. I gotta say, I was a bit disturbed watching Trump just talk over Biden and, and Chris Wallace letting him do so. I am reminded of the fact that Chris Wallace is a commentator for Fox News. Although Mr. Miller and I kept shouting out, you know, why is he letting Trump get away with this? Well, I think I think that's the answer. Looked to me, it looked to me that when Biden was talking about uh, COVID nineteen, he was scoring some points because God knows they're there to be scored. But Trump's solution was to do as he always does, which is just start spewing lies and misstatements and falsehoods and fantasy answers that, in his own mind, he wishes were true. Anyway, back to COVID-19. The world has now seen one million deaths from the disease, said new scientists in relation to that. Early in the pandemic, U.S. President Donald Trump suggested COVID-19 wasn't as bad as the flu. He was wrong. In a bad year, the flu kills up to 650,000 people globally. COVID-19 has killed far more with three months of the year still yet to go. And it won't stop when old Lang Syne is sung, or even when the first effective vaccine is manufactured. And COVID-19 has killed those people not under normal circumstances, but in the face of a global lockdown, the like of which we couldn't even imagine a year ago. Overwhelmingly, those who have died were age 65 or over, but on average, they would have had more than a decade of life left had it not been for COVID-19. The disease's long tail, meanwhile, means the impact on younger people has still to be fully understood. Most concerning is the fact that one million is an underestimate. It only counts those COVID deaths that have been detected. Many people will die. Many people will have died from the illness untested, and so may not be included in official death tolls. And of course, that death toll around the world suffers from the same problem we have in America confirmation via testing. Noted new scientists, some countries only counted COVID-19 death that the person had tested positive using a polymerase chain reaction test. A lack of these tests in some places can be a hindrance to counting deaths accurately. That same issue of the magazine did have some good news. It noted that genetic sequencing shows that the virus behind COVID-19 has barely evolved, which is good news for vaccine developers. It quotes Samuel Diaz Munoz, an evolutionary virologist at the University of California at Davis, saying the coronavirus genome is exceptionally stable. Since the beginning of the pandemic, we've seen like six mutations in a 30,000-base genome. It's one strain with minor variations. The point of that is a vaccine for one strain should affect them all because they're not so very different. And sadly, since we spoke to you last, California has become the first state in the union with 800,000 COVID-19 cases. Though on a per capita basis, they're doing worse in Texas with an absolute number of about 760,000 and Florida, which is pushing 700,000. Last Thursday, September 24th, Anthony Fauci told us that a vaccine will not replace the other public health measures like masks, social distancing, hand washing, etc., which is contrary to Donald Trump's statements, most recently made on September 16th, wherein he downplayed the importance of masks compared to that of 
the vaccine. But unfortunately, the medical experts in the federal government appear to be presenting something of a united front, as Dr. Fauci, Dr. Redfield at the CDC, Brett Girard, the so-called testing czar, Stephen Hahn at the FDA, and Francis Collins, head of the NIH, all say that vaccine development in this country will be guided by science. Their estimates are that we will have a vaccine, if we're lucky, by next summer. Now, of course, we have vaccines now that are being tested on people, but we have to test them to see if they're safe. And then going out and manufacturing several hundred million doses of it, well, it's a bit of a big deal. In spite of what you may have heard from Donald J. Trump during his debate, after his medical people made that statement fairly clearly, Trump decided to counter. He said that he may override the FDA if the agency places tougher standards on vaccine authorization than he'd like. By the way, this might explain why Alex Azar moved to require that he, the Secretary of the Health and Human Services Agency, sign off on all future authorizations. After all, that might allow him, acting for the president, to speed things along in spite of reservations by the medical people. This week, the country is reporting over 43,000 new cases a day. That is double the number in June when the lockdowns around the country started being eased. And in Florida right now, in spite of the fact the numbers continue to climb rather abruptly, they've decided to basically fully open the Florida economy as if this wasn't happening at all. And on Saturday, September 26th, Dr. Chris Murray, who's director of the University of Washington's Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, the IHME, noted per the models the university is currently using, the current deaths per day rate in the U.S. of about 765 might swell to 3,000 by late December. And at least 24 states of the union are reporting a new rise in cases versus the previous week. And on that same day, just to demonstrate that the U.S. does not have a corner on the market for stupidity, London began experiencing anti-lockdown protests. Police were warning the protesters to maintain social distancing, which frankly they did not appear to be doing a good job at. The news isn't good in Europe either. Spain is once again on the front lines of the pandemic. A strict three-month lockdown suppressed one of the continent's worst coronavirus outbreaks earlier this year, but Spain is now recording 10,000 cases a day. Some neighborhoods in Madrid are back under lockdown. Writing in El Diario in Spain, Monica Garcia said it didn't have to be this way. New York City was hit as hard as the Spanish capital, but it has since kept its caseload low. The key difference is that New York reopened cautiously while Madrid authorities did, quote, everything possible to rush a full opening, unquote, without investing in testing and tracing. Writing in El País, Raquel Vidalas noted the pandemic in Spain is stirring up class warfare. A performance of Verdi's Un Balo in Mascera at Madrid's Teatro Real was canceled last week after opera goers in the cheap balcony seats discovered they had to sit shoulder to shoulder while those in the pricey orchestra streets were appropriately social distanced. Apparently, the booing from the gallery was so loud, the conductor left the theater. The week notes that even in the Czech Republic, once Europe's star in the fight against COVID-19, thanks to its early embracing of masks, well, it's facing a rather terrifying autumn. Martin Komarok, writing in Denik, said that we too opened too soon. Now this nation of 11 million people is recording up to 3,000 positive cases daily, 
and experts warn that if they register 4,000 a day for a full month, our health systems will start to collapse, which is why indoor events are being banned and face masks already needed to enter stores will be required in schools. Writing in The Observer in the UK, Andrew Ronsley said, that's where Britain's heading. We registered 42,000 coronavirus deaths so far this year, the highest in Europe. Now, with new cases doubling every seven days, we could hit a staggering 50,000 cases a day by mid-October. Yet, we are inexcusably short of tests. And even teachers and other essential workers exposed to COVID-19 are told they will have to travel hundreds of miles to get a swab. The government claims the current surge was unforeseeable. In fact, it was both predictable and predicted. In Finland, they're trying out sniffer dogs in the Helsinki airport to check flyers for the coronavirus. During a four-month trial there, air travels will be asked to provide a sweat sample swabbed from their necks. The dogs will then sniff the sample for 10 seconds and give its verdict by scratching a paw, barking, or some other canine signal. Whether passengers test positive or not, they will be urged to take a standard polymerase chain reaction test, so the sniffer's dog's accuracy can then be monitored. That's quite a concept, actually doing a test to see how well you're doing. Who let the dogs out? Who, 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 who let the dogs out? Yeah, yes, Mr. Mullen, thank you for that. Reportedly, a similar trial conducted in Dubai this summer found that trained dogs could detect the virus with 90% accuracy. A Finnish researcher is claiming that the dogs can even identify people who are not yet PCR positive but will become so within a week. Well, maybe, hope so. We need all the tools we can, we can possibly get. And as long predicted on Radio Parallax, it appears that India is surging and likely to catch up and exceed the total of the United States. And looking at those potential figures, India is not helped by the fact that it's got four times the population of the U.S. On September 16th, it set a new record with 97,000 daily cases. Its total is now 5.6 million cases. Of course, one could argue that on a per capita basis, India is still ahead of the United States, which uh, whichever of the many per capita choices you may want to go with. I do note that on September 14th, India's health minister, Hash Vardhan, said that one million tests were being conducted daily. And I confess, at the moment, I don't know what the U.S. total is, but I'll know by next week. I'm willing to bet 50 cents it's a lower number. You know, in fact, you kind of have to admire the Indians. They're going ahead and testing, even if it makes them look bad. This week, Donald Trump did give his response for the pandemic a grade. And what do you know? He gave it an A+. At a packed rally in Ohio, where very few were wearing masks, he falsely said that COVID-19 affects virtually nobody under the age of 18. The only people who had to worry about it were the elderly, those with heart problems or other comorbidities. Although, frankly, I'm pretty sure the president didn't use the word comorbidities. I'm guessing he said other things. In spite of this nonsense, we need to keep in mind that there's something like 205,000 Americans officially uh, dead due to COVID, and the total, the total is possibly 50% higher. Sounding off on this, the Washington Post said, mourn the 200,000 dead and be angry, very angry. This tragedy has been worsened by the president, who has minimized the threat, refused to mobilize a large-scale government response, dismissed the importance of mask wearing, and prodded GOP states to reopen before viral spread was under control. 
To Bob Woodward, Trump said nothing more could have been done. But the Post said there is work to do. Wear a mask, social distance, wash your hands, and vote. And we may have gained some insight as to why it is Scientific American broke its long-standing, like century-and-a-half-long policy of not endorsing political candidates and, in fact, backing Joe Biden. Claudia Wallace, writing in ScientificAmerican.com, said the Trump administration is letting politics distort science. Leaked emails have revealed how political appointees at the Department of Health and Human Services have tried to slow the release of data that contradicts Trump, including a negative report on hydroxychloroquine. And information on children spreading the virus. They note with scientific findings being run, quote, through a political distortion field, end quote, will the public be able to trust federal assessments of coronavirus treatments and vaccines? Well, I think the answer to that's pretty clear. Anyway, my dear listener, I think it's very important we keep our eye on the ball for the next five weeks as the November 3rd election approaches. There is much to be worried about come election time. We're still hoping to bring someone on this program who works for the United States Postal Service to tell about some of the chicanery that's going on, which is clearly aimed at suppressing the vote-by-mail ballots that will surely come in for Joe Biden. Now, a federal judge has temporarily blocked the U.S. Postal Service from making a series of operational changes that have slowed down the delivery of mail. Judge Stanley Bastian said that the 14 states that had sued the agency had adequately proven that Donald Trump and Postmaster General Louis DeJoy orchestrated a, quote, politically motivated attack on the efficiency of the Postal Service, end quote, that would, quote, irreparably harm the state's ability to administer the 2020 general election, unquote. The week notes that DeJoy took over the leadership of the USPS in June, And since then, on-time delivery of first-class mail has fallen from about 90% to 83%, and much lower in some regions. Among the changes on his watch was an order for trucks to follow schedules, even if it meant leaving mail behind. Judge Bastian said policy changes, including the removal of sorting machines and public collection boxes, appeared to be part of an intentional effort to disrupt and challenge the election's legitimacy and amounted to voter disenfranchisement. Now, somewhere... On the internet, our friend Jim DiEugenio posted an item related to this recently, to which some folks jumped in. Well, I jumped in. And I believe, legally, I am some folks. To note that the kind of acts we're describing at the U.S. Postal Service must surely violate some of the laws of the land. And in a nation famous for its litigiousness, can't somebody step forward to file some suits? I think we're going to have to depend on the states to do this. Well, 14 states are doing it already. Maybe we can double that. Why don't we get 28 states to start filing lawsuits and see if we can't get Louis DeJoy uh, held accountable? Or maybe better yet, perp-walked. You know, my left hand right now, I'm looking at the Jane Mayer article. It was in the New Yorker in July, which I still have not managed to get to. The sub-headline of this piece titled Back to the Jungle, is that Trump is helping a meat processing giant leverage the pandemic to strip workers of protections. I'm pretty sure that's a fair assessment. Since a relative of a friend of mine died in a meat packing plant, or after working in a meat packing plant in Merced, one of eight people to do so there. And by the way, we had hoped to bring someone on this program uh, today who had, had gone through COVID-19. I'd like to hear his story. I think probably you would too. 
But we couldn't swing it this time. We'll, we'll try again next week when we also try and bring someone on from the Postal Service. And we try and reach out to our, uh, our good pal, Dr. Sean Killam in Florida, to see if we can't get a report of what is going on there in the Sunshine State. And by the way, looking at the numbers, looking at the state-by-state polls, you know, trying to assess who's likely to win in the Electoral College, I would say that on paper, as it were, it, it looks pretty good for Biden. But I think complacency would be our, our arch enemy here. There's going to be a lot of chicanery on Election Day. And frankly, I think it's going to take something close to a Biden landslide to ensure that the administration will not pervert the election. I also want to note, slightly out of left field, that Radio Parallax has stumbled into what we think is a potentially explosive scandal going on here in the state of California. But we're going to do our darndest to get our ducks in a row before we start mouthing off about that. We can assure you that it is explosive. Speaking of explosive, we do have a bit of follow-up on uh, what Donald Trump had to say when he came to visit us uh, a week or two ago. Trump apparently evoked Austria in describing how it is California has exploding trees and other places that have an even worse exploding trees do better than we do. Well, this apparently uh, tickled their fancy over in Austria. Writer Andreas Schwartz asked if it was really fair to mock Donald Trump for claiming that Austrians live in forest cities. He notes that Trump invoked our nation while ranting about the alleged mismanagement of California's forests by state officials by saying that Austria is heavily forested and has more explosive trees that spontaneously combust, yet it avoids the kind of devastating wildfires now ripping through the Golden State. Amused Austrians immediately took to social media. One posted a photo of a fog-shrouded woodland captioned, The Vienna Skyline. Another image labeled, Austrian at Home, showed a man sitting on a log with his laptop. But they went on, let's look at the facts. Austria really does have a lot of forests, and Trump got that right. Remember, this is a leader who once called Belgium a beautiful city and asked whether Finland was part of Russia. This is the man who was amazed while in London to discover that NATO member Great Britain is a nuclear power. Something else Trump sort of got right is the fact that when there is a, a fire in the forest and a dry tree ignites, it can actually explode. I have a friend staying with me at the moment who is in fact a refugee from the fires currently raging north of Napa. Believe you me, she's got quite a story to tell. I don't know whether she'll come on this program to tell it. But as we speak, she does not know whether her house will shortly be burnt to the ground. Anyway, the fact that uh, California keeps having worse windstorms in fall is apparently contributing to the fact that our fire seasons are coming earlier and being worse. The 900-plus blazes that were ignited by that freak lightning storm in August have now incinerated six times as much land as all the state's 2019 wildfires combined, and they have forced 100,000 people from their homes. It was noted that three of the largest fires in California's history burned simultaneously in a ring around the San Francisco Bay Area. And believe you me, the smoke cloud they put up made uh, the skies look like uh, we were on Mars. The reporting on this does note that California is recording some very hot temperatures lately. That 130 degrees that was recorded in Death Valley some weeks back is now being considered to be possibly the hottest temperature ever measured on Earth. Now, as a kid, I remember that the hottest temperature on Earth was supposed to be 136 in Libya, but I did read later that they 
said those those numbers were suspicious. Uh, my understanding was that Death Valley had previously hit 134. But I got to tell you personally, once the temperature gets over about 122, it doesn't make that much difference. But is this all related to global warming? Well, most probably it is. And by the way, another environmentalist we need to bring back on this program is Dan Bacher and talk about what is going on with the water situation in California. Did note that on this last Sunday, September 27th, it was reported that uh, the plastics recycling law in California, which is has been passed, which is going to require billions of soda, juice, and other bottles to contain 50% recycled plastic by 2030. Gavin Newsom signed that bill on Sunday. Supporters of the new law say that it will help increase demand for recycled plastic, curb litter in waterways and along roads, and reduce consumption of oil and gas, which are used to manufacture plastics. Well, damn it, we hope so. Because the ugly reality about plastics, which was revealed in a recent piece by NPR is that, wouldn't you know it, big oil misled the public into believing plastic would be recycled. I have more to say about that in a second. One thing we should note in this current coronavirus pandemic is that it has led to a resurgence in single-use plastics, which is bad news. As if the virus wasn't bringing up enough bad news. An article in New Scientist notes that California dropped its ban on single-use plastic bags for several months although it has since restated it. Other places in the U.S., from Denver to Minneapolis, have delayed bag bans or fees or lifted existing ones. Italy postponed a plastics tax on bottles, bags, and more until 2021. A Norway-backed effort to establish an international treaty on marine plastic pollution has been indefinitely postponed because of COVID-19. The magazine notes that as this goes on, the plastic industry has grabbed the opportunity to push back against growing restrictions in recent years, arguing that single-use plastic is safer and more hygienic amid a pandemic. Well, that may be, but, you know, I, I, I'm horrified, and, I'm, and perhaps you are too, dear listener, to take stock of how much plastic I'm consuming every week. It seems to me that a lot of things that used to be packaged in paper are, are now all in plastic. And though we did promise you some months ago and then didn't deliver on the fact that we were going to speak to a Mexican friend of ours to confirm that in Mexico, they're still using recycled bottles. Like we used to do in America, you would make a deposit on the bottle, you pay for that deposit when you bought it, and the bottle retained that value when you returned it. Well, these days, nobody wants to you know, bother with recycling glass that way, so we don't, and we should. A lot of things that are put in plastic probably should be put back in glass. And then reused. Back to the NPR story. Well, let me just read from the print version of it. Laura Labrick, a manager at Rogue Disposal and Recycling in Southern Oregon, is standing on the end of its landfill watching an avalanche of plastic trash pour out of a semi-trailer. Containers, bags, packaging, strawberry containers, yogurt cups. None of this will be turned into new plastic things. All of it is buried. Said Liebrich, to me, that felt like it was a betrayal of the public trust. I had been lying to people unwittingly. Rogue, like most recycling companies, has been sending plastic trash to China. But when China shut its doors two years ago, Liebrich scoured for U.S. buyers. She could find only someone who wanted white milk jugs. She sends the soda bottles to the state. But when Liebrich tried to tell people the truth about burying all the other plastics, she said people didn't want to hear it. 
She said, I remember the first meeting where I actually told the city council that it was costing more to recycle than it was to dispose of the same materials as garbage. It was like heresy had been spoken in the room. You're lying. This is gold. We take the time to clean it, take the labels off, separate it, and put it here. It's gold. This is valuable. But, said NPR, it's not valuable and never has been. And what's more, the makers of plastic, the nation's largest oil and gas companies, have known this all along, even as they were spending millions of dollars to tell the American public the opposite. NPR and PBS Frontline spent months digging into internal industry documents and interviewing top former officials. They found that the industry sold the public on an idea it knew wouldn't work, that the majority of plastic could be and would be recycled, all the while making billions selling the world new plastic. Anyway, we don't have time to go through the whole piece. I just want to quote another little bit in there. The article refers to Larry Thomas, former president of the Society of the Plastics Industry, who works side-by-side with top oil and plastics executives. He's retired now on the coast of Florida, and uh, is a little conflicted about what he did. He said, I did what the industry wanted me to do, that's for sure. My personal views didn't always jibe with the views I had to take as part of my job. Thomas took over back in the late 1980s, and back then plastic was in a crisis. There was too much plastic trash. The public was getting upset. A document from 1989 outlines that Thomas called executives at Exxon, Chevron, Amoco, Dow, DuPont, Procter & Gamble, and others to a private meeting at the Ritz-Carlton in Washington. He wrote, The image of plastics is deteriorating at an alarming rate. We're approaching the point of no return. He told the executives they needed to act. The viability of the industry and profitability of your company are at stake. The feeling was the plastics industry was under fire. We got to do what it takes to take the heat off because we want to continue to make plastic products, he said. So began the plastic industry's $50 million a year campaign promoting the benefits of plastic. One iconic ad blared, presenting the possibilities of plastic, showing kids in bike helmets and plastic bags floating in the air. At the same time, the industry launched a number of feel-good projects telling the public to recycle plastic. It funded sorting machines, recycling centers, nonprofits, even expensive benches outside grocery stores made out of plastic bags. Few of these projects actually turned much plastic into new things. None of them was able to get past the economics. Making new plastic out of oil is cheaper and easier than making it out of plastic trash. But Friedman and Thomas, the head of the lobbying group, said the executives all knew that. There was a lot of discussion about how difficult it was to recycle. They knew the infrastructure wasn't there to really have recycling amount to a whole lot. And yes, the article details how the plastic industry managed to put a little symbol on their material showing that it was recyclable, which led to consumers looking at what's on their soda bottle and what's on their yogurt tub and saying, oh, well, they both have the symbol. I guess they both go in the recycling. But in fact, the bins were now full of trash that couldn't be sold. Some environmentalists also supported this recycling symbol, thinking it would help separate plastic. What it did was make all plastic look recyclable, and it isn't. So anyway, back to California. I guess if you're forced, mandated by law to recycle plastics when you're making new plastic items, well, maybe that's what it's going to take. All right, in the three minutes we have left on the program, I want to do an obituary. Frankly, when I saw this, I was surprised he was still alive. But Donald Kendall, Pepsi's chief during the Cola Wars, died this week at age 99. I remember the name Donald Kendall pretty well from many years back because of his association not so much with Pepsi but with Richard Nixon. Donald Kendall was a sales guy. 
He started out as a bottling plant worker, moved up to being a fountain syrup salesman, and up the corporate chain to become the chief executive of Pepsi-Cola by 1963. He expanded Pepsi into food production by merging it with Frito-Lay in 1965 under the name PepsiCo, acquiring fast food chains like Kentucky Fried Chicken, Pizza Hut, and Taco Bell. But notes his obituary as a politically astute chief executive of a global corporation, Kendall cultivated a close personal and professional relationship with Richard Nixon, who early on represented Pepsi as a lawyer. In fact, back in 1959, Donald Kendall was seeking to open a Pepsi plant in the Soviet Union, and he saw an opportunity in an exhibition of American products taking place in Moscow that year. This is the same exhibition where Vice President Nixon famously conducted his celebrated kitchen debate with Nikita Khrushchev. At Kendall's request, Nixon steered Khrushchev to the Pepsi display. Said Kendall, I went to Nixon the night before the embassy and told him I was in a lot of trouble at home because people thought I was wasting Pepsi's money coming to a communist country. I told him that somehow I had to get a Pepsi in Khrushchev's hand. Well, he succeeded. Kendall poured Pepsi into a paper cup for the premier, who promptly declared the beverage very refreshing. And wouldn't you know it, when Richard Nixon was president, Pepsi managed to sign an agreement with the USSR to make their cola in Russia. And in doing so, PepsiCo accepted Soviet-made Stolichnaya vodka as payment instead of rubles. Anyway, it looks like we're flat out of time, so I can't finish what I intend to finish about Donald Kendall. It's fine. We'll put it on to next week. But I do want to have one little anecdote, which I necessarily must include. Following Pepsi's success under Nixon to break into the Soviet Union, when President Jimmy Carter managed to get Atlanta-based Coca-Cola in Russia as well. At the ceremony for the plant opening, Foreign Minister Everett Shevardnadze was given the first glass of Coke coming off the bottling plant's lines. He took a sip and, wanting to be complimentary, said, It tastes just like Pepsi. I'd like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. We're out of time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We will see you next week. I'd like to teach the world to sing. Sing with me. Sing with me.